Sam, it's time to answer the most important question of the year. Who do you think is going to win the glitter ball this Sunday in Strictly Come Dancing? <laughs> that is the real political question of 2020. I think it's going to be... Well, I'd love it to be Bill and Elty, but I think it's going to be Harvey and Jeanette is my answer. How First about of all, yourself? I was exactly going to say Bill will be my will be my winner, but I don't think he's going to win, is he? I mean, I was going to go with Harvey as well. I think his dancing has actually been better. Yeah, um, yeah. but we. I shall can't see believe indeed. it's Jeanette's first final. Well, we're going to find out. <laughs> yeah. Well, anyway, it is Saturday, the nineteenth of December, twenty twenty, and this is better to talk about. Hello and welcome to another episode of Ballot to Talk About. I'm joined, as always, from the other side of the globe by my co-host Churn. How are you doing? Good, thanks, Sam. It's good to talk to you as always. Fun fact, by the way, I read today that it is 22 years to the day that President Bill Clinton was impeached by the US House. And it's actually one year yesterday that Donald Trump was impeached by the House. I mean... December, tis the season to be merry. Clearly not if you're a United States president facing impeachment, are you? <laughs> Clearly not. Clearly not. So this week, we were intending, as I said last week, to be discussing the ins and outs of Brexit and the impact of that referendum on UK politics. But alas, yet another Brexit deadline has passed us by with no sign of an agreement. But it's very unlike Brexit deadlines to be missed, isn't it, Churn? Can I just say that feels so 2019, doesn't it? I know, another one has passed us by and we're still waiting with bated breath to see what that sort of agreement will look like. And as soon as it does, we'll be recording a podcast to talk about the impact of Brexit. So don't worry about that. But instead, we thought we would bring forward our intended review of the year podcast in which we'll be discussing the year that was 2020 and Chern and I will be talking through our picks and contenders for the coveted Ballot Talk Awards 2020. As you said, Sam, so this, today we're going to review a range of categories, good, bad, comedic, more serious, and include contenders from all around the world. Since we have talked about politics on this podcast from the United States to Moldova, Romania, and to the other side of the world in New Zealand. But first, before we get into the awards, what have you been looking at, Sam, in terms of global politics news? Well, I've actually been looking to the US once again after last week, because this week... Are you our new US correspondent now for Ballot to talk about? It would seem so. It would seem so. Particularly the uh, Biden cabinet correspondent. But yeah, this week we had the US Electoral College met to cast its ceremonial votes for the 2020 presidential election, which confirmed Biden's 306 to 232 vote victory. And following that Electoral College meeting, we actually saw Mitch McConnell finally acknowledge Joe Biden as the president-elect and victor of the election, which I think really was the final nail in Trump's electoral coffin and his baseless and unending campaign to overturn the electoral results. So He's still I, trying, though, according to his He's still trying, account. but everybody around him, I think, has finally admitted that the jig is up. So even if we have to have a televised broadcast of him being dragged out of the Oval Office on January the 21st, I think it's safe to assume that Joe Biden will be smoothly confirmed as the next president on inauguration day next year. One question on the US electoral process. Are you worried about what January the 6th? Now, January the 6th is, of course, the day in which the the US Congress counts the official electoral college Mm -hmm. votes and several Republicans, such as Representative Mo Brooks and Tommy Tuberville of Alabama, plan to challenge the results then. So are you worried about what shenanigans or Ever, given that the vote is overseen by the vice president, Mike Pence. So if he wants to endear himself to the Trump base, I see a perfect opportunity to do so. I think we should all count ourselves lucky that this election in the end was not close, because if this was close, then we might be seeing some pretty problematic challenges to, well, democracy. But I think what's going to happen on the 6th now, especially now that Mitch McConnell 
himself, the Senate majority leader, has admitted that Biden has won the election. I think enough people will fall in line that this the that the stirrings coming from people like Tommy Tuberville will ultimately count for nothing. But stranger things have happened. Indeed, stranger things have happened. But in the meantime, speaking of President-elect Joe Biden, we had a few more cabinet nominees confirmed this week, starting with Pete Buttigieg coming in as the Transport Secretary, which is not the job we predicted Pete Buttigieg would be in at all. We both thought it'd be something alongside along the uh, military lines. But actually, on reflection, I think this job for him makes perfect sense. We both agreed that we thought of all the primary contenders, Pete was the likeliest person to elevate to a cabinet level because, let's be honest, there's not many routes for him to advance in national politics within his home state of Indiana at the moment. But it actually makes perfect sense on a logistical and administrative perspective because he's a former small city mayor who controlled this kind of transport infrastructure in his job there. And it was these kind of transport infrastructure projects that were at the heart of his administration in South Bend, in Indiana, and also at the heart of his presidential campaign. And I think Biden recognises that and recognises the sort of small town infrastructure project approach that he wants to have within his administration. We Do you think that this job fits Pete? I think like you, I mean, we both thought that he was going to be Secretary of Veterans Affairs. So when Dennis Madonna got the job of Veterans Affairs Secretary, I did think at that point what he could fit in. And like you, I have come to realisation that I think this is better job for him because one of the problems that I think the Biden cabinet has is that it's very old and I'm not sure how many of them are. They are technocrats in the areas, but whether the media communicate this, that's mm-hmm. a completely different thing. And one thing Pete has shown, certainly on Fox News, is that he can communicate even to a hostile audience. He can certainly put his point across. And one of the ways in which I think the Democrats need to do better is reaching out to rural voters. And one of the most consequential positions, therefore, apart from the fact of necessarily being agriculture secretary, is to be transportation secretary. Because um having a roads or having good road infrastructure could direct uh, directly impacts them the most. I should like to point out that in his acceptance speech, accepting the nomination of Transport Secretary, he said he dreamt of being an airline pilot, um, which is quite, um, which shows that he has always had an interest in transport policy for a very long time. In fact, he proposed his husband, Chastin, at Chicago's O'Hare International Airport which is one of the more unique places to propose, I would have to be honest. And I should also say that in 2016, South Bend, and he was then mayor of South Bend, won a Smart Street Prize. So clearly, he's, he's, so he was um, recognised when he was mayor of South Bend of really bringing um, commerce to downtown. And the way he did that was through changing bus routes and integrating transport infrastructure into downtown. I mean, the big problem is that, let's be honest, South Bend is a population of 100,000. I mean, the Department of Transport itself has 50,000 employees. So he's going to run a department with 50,000 employees having, well, presided over, he was elected with only 10,000 votes. So this is a big scaling up. And the Department of Transport, its biggest agencies are actually aviation, which is, I'm not sure how much real impact or real knowledge he has in this previous area. So it'll be interesting to see how how he grasps on these policy issues going into this job. Because one of the things we talked about last week was that the buying cabinet did not require training wheels, as you said, because they've been experts in these areas for a long time. I think Pete might actually need some training wheels, particularly in this initial period. Although I have confidence that he will catch up and get on top of the issues as quickly as possible. Yeah, and I think it's worth mentioning as well that he would become the first openly LGBTQ cabinet secretary in US history, which is a notable point on diversity and is really good progress. And Pete talked a lot about that in his acceptance speech the other day, which I thought was really nice to see. Um, And he's also going to be the youngest appointment of Biden's administration so far by quite a distance. But speaking of trying to engage with rural voters. Another appointment that came out this week was Jennifer Granholm 
as the energy secretary, who is former Michigan governor. And I think this is a genius appointment, really, because she specifically has experience with selling climate politics, which she engaged with quite closely as governor of Michigan, to auto manufacturers and blue collar constituents, which I think in the grand scheme of climate politics is the real big thing that needs to be solved. Because once you get those on board, you can really start moving forward with engaging on the climate side. And I noticed that when Biden rolled out his latest raft of appointments that included Jennifer Granholm and also the next person we're going to talk about, Deb Haaland, it was labelled as the climate team rather than their individual portfolios, because I think they're really wanting to put an emphasis on this. And really, I think Jennifer Granholm's appointment is a genius one in that respect. And it'll be interesting to see if she is able to live up to what I think the Biden campaign wants from her. Just a quick fun fact about Jennifer Granholm, as she was previously governor of Michigan, mm-hmm. a big industrial auto industrial state from 2002 to 2010. In 2006, when she ran for, successfully ran for re-election, she got the most number of votes in Michigan governor history of any candidate, Democrat or Republican. So showing that she can appeal to these auto works, I totally agree with what you say. So it's definitely the right candidate for there. The person she defeated, the Republican candidate for um, Governor of Michigan in 2006, was a man called Dick DeVore. Now, his wife <laughs> is Betsy DeVore, the current the worst secretary. cabinet but, secretaries in US history. Um, yeah, well, I, I mean, I'm finding it very hard to disagree with that statement. So, um, so there is a, um, a Michigan connection still through this cabinet, through Jennifer Granholm. But I thought that was just an interesting fact mm. about her. And finally, on the Biden cabinet this week, we had in the last 48 hours confirmation that Deb Haaland, New Mexico congresswoman, will be the first Native American cabinet secretary as she takes up her position, if confirmed, as secretary for the interior, which I think is very notable in the grand scheme of American history because the Department for the Interior has had well, this is going to be the understatement of the century, but has had issues with the native community. So actually Biden inputting a Native American woman to lead that department is a really big step for the Native American community in the United States. And hopefully it tries to bridge the gap that exists between those two groups. And it's yet another example of the Biden cabinet doing firsts, because we have the first openly LGBTQ cabinet secretary, first Native American cabinet secretary, we'll have the first African American defense secretary, first Latino head of health and human services and homeland security, first African American woman to be UN ambassador, and that's just a start. So do you think that the Biden cabinet so far is ticking the sort of diversity boxes that most of the Democratic Party was hoping for. Well, you forgot probably the one the most significant one, which is first female Treasury Secretary oh, in two hundred years history with yeah, Janet and Yellen. Actually, I did read that if they're all confirmed, all of the appointments so far, it would have nine women in the cabinet, and that's before all of the positions have been filled, which would already break the record for the number of women in cabinet. I mean, first of all, it's actually already, just if you look at those announced, it is 50-50. Mm-hmm. So that has already been announced so far. And the statistics on race is actually very interesting because as of today, the number of white cabinet members that have been nominated constitute 45%, which is less than half. Mm-hmm. And blacks constitute 30%. So actually, it is a, it's going to look very much different from the cabinet that it is succeeding. On the wider diversity point, yes, I think definitely we're hitting the mark that I think on the face of it, it does appear that we're hitting the mark um, in terms of diversity. But we've still been here, some groups still very unhappy or wanting more representation. I know the Hispanic community is still feeling a bit upset that even though Xavier Barracava was appointed health secretary, the treatment of Michelle Lujan Grisham, who we thought was going to be health secretary, still made a few of them upset. And the way in which they're channeling their frustrations is 
through wanting to demand more Hispanic cabinet positions. I think the question I have for you, Sam, is another diversity as well is Biden's political coalition. Mm-hmm. Because these are not left-wing progressives, are they? So how... Uh, I mean, I could definitely sense some frustration, as we talked about last week, by Elizabeth Warren um, about the nomination of Lloyd Austin to be Defence Secretary. And overall, some of these Bernie types are a bit unhappy with the extent of progressiveness in the Biden cabinet. So first of all, do you think there is an upset among the left, among Biden's cabinet, and B, what can be done about it? Yeah, I do sense quite a bit of upset from the left, but and I can't speak on behalf of the Biden campaign, obviously, but I think what the calculation they've made is that we can introduce progressive policies as an administration, but if we were going to get progressive people to lead those departments in an environment where we may be seeing a Republican Senate held 52-48, those appointments would be incredibly difficult. And I don't think it's worth going through those motions because it might have an impact on other appointments you make if it feels like Biden is trying to assemble an overtly left-leaning political apparatus. It might be a struggle to get through your even your moderate cabinet appointments whereas i think the game biden is trying to play is here is a handful of technocratic rational people and i want you to confirm these quite easily because in a majority of cases they've been confirmed before so there shouldn't be an issue and then as an administration we'll try and forge through with some more progressive policies and then we'll deal with the senate majority then this is just me suggesting what I think will be going through their minds. And I'm not sure that this would be satisfactory to progressives anyway. But that's where I think the calculation is coming from. But if they want to get progressive legislation through, I mean, the very first step is you get it through the House, isn't mm-hmm. it? And one of the problems that Biden is going to have is that he's essentially with the Nancy Pelosi's margin for error in the House, suddenly in the short term to essentially zero. Because at this stage... Um, Nancy Pelosi has four votes to play with before she loses her majority. Cedric Richmond is going to work in the White House, so he's a representative from Louisiana. Mm-hmm. Deb Harlan, as we mentioned, the Interior Secretary, she represents a New Mexico conceit. And Marcia Fudge, going to be the Housing Secretary, represents an Ohio seat. Now, all three of them are, say, Democratic seats on paper, but we have seen strange things at by-elections before. So if you and given the wide democratic coalition in the house, people like Abigail Spanberger on one hand to Alexander Ocasio Cortez on the other, is how do you think Biden is trying to square that with the essential zero margin for error in the house? Yeah, it's going to be difficult, but I know that Joe Biden has been a person who very much has Congress at the forefront of his mind when planning things. So I don't think he would have made these appointments from the House without consulting the congressional leadership. And you you will know as well that Deb Haaland, for example, has been the rumoured Interior Secretary for quite some time. But it was interesting that it took until this week to confirm that once Nancy Pelosi had publicly mm-hmm. greenlit Deb Haaland leaving the House. So I think, as we've said persistently, Nancy Pelosi is on top of her numbers. Counting votes is one of her key political skills. And I think she is confident that she'll be able to navigate it. But yes, it very much depends on what is put in front of the House in terms of counting those votes. But I think Nancy Pelosi and Joe Biden collectively would not have sanctioned these appointments if they didn't think it was possible to avoid this becoming a problem. Interesting observation there. My thoughts on what I've been looking up in terms of the news has been across the Pacific Ocean, actually, because on Friday, the Australian cabinet announced a reshuffle. It was long rumoured uh, to be happening the end of this week, and it had to happen because there was Matthias Cormann, the finance minister, resigned in order to become Australia's candidate to lead the OECD. Scott Morrison had flagged that the Prime Minister had flagged that Simon Birmingham, the Trade Minister, would take over as Finance Minister and leader of the government 
in the Senate. And so therefore the reshuffle announced on Friday was therefore to announce the domino blocks on who would fill Simon Birmingham's previous uh, trade, tourism and investment portfolio, which turned out to be going to Dan Tian, who is a former diplomat and trade advisor himself. He has become trade minister, which is crucial given at the time in which Australia has had tensions with its largest trading partner in China. Mm-hmm. Alan Touch was the other big winner. He was promoted to, to become Minister for Education and Youth Affairs. And his urban infrastructure portfolio was assumed by the current Communication Arts mm-hmm. Minister, Paul Fletcher, a role in which he has done before. There were also some movement in the junior ranks of the government um, in the roles of parliamentary secretaries and uh, ministers not attending cabinet. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the criticisms of this reshuffle is the fact that aged care minister Richard Colback has remained in his job despite many failings. For example, in a parliamentary uh, um, scrutiny committee, he didn't know the number of people that died from COVID in aged care homes, which made Gavin Williamson's tenure as education secretary seem like a competent one by that <laughs> admission. And the fact that the number of women in cabinet have remained six out of 22. So we're looking at 25% there or thereabouts. One of the questions that I wanted to talk about is on the merits of the government reshuffle. Is the last Australian reshuffle took place in 2019, so just after the Australian election. And the last reshuffle before that was in 2018 when Scott Morrison took over Prime Minister. In fact, Australia has had reshuffles in its government for every single year since 2010, really. They reshuffled the government and government departments every single year of this decade. Part of it is the fact that you need to put new places in and solve political problems. But do you think that in general, this could be bad for a department's instability in getting on top of complex problems? Yeah, I think it very much depends on where the reshuffles come from and what they're motivated by. I personally have a problem with frequent reshuffles for political reasons because I think it adds to a lot of instability in departments that are actually quite important. And if you're trying to establish a coherent and continuous policy in a certain area, but you keep changing the person in charge of it every 12 months, you're never going to deliver actual uh, stable and effective policy delivery unless the incoming person does nothing. And as someone who's followed this reshuffle more closely than I have, is this a politically motivated one? I know you said that it's because they need to fill quite an important gap, but was do you think that a lot of these appointments were motivated by political opportunism or were they genuine reasons to try and solve issues in departments? I think this reshuffle was definitely was necessity, as I said, because of Matthias Coleman's resignation as finance minister, but largely motivated by politics, I would say. The fact that it was minimalistic is because I think Scott Morrison over the next 12 months is going to change the conversation on climate change, Mm -hmm. which has brought down the previous Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull. And the last thing you want to do is create a lot of unhappy people with their noses disjointed because of uh, reshuffle. I would say that's the number one thing. Especially and number in two alter- in Australian politics where exactly they they've tend gone, to grind knives quite quickly. They definitely do on both Labour and Liberal parties as well. And number two, I think this is going to be Essentially, this reshuffle will be the government, the cabinet to take them to the next election. Now, officially, Scott Morrison says that the next election will take place in the first half of 2022, which is when the government's legislative term is supposed to end. But I don't, a lot of commentators don't seem to think so. And I do think the government is polling quite well right now in the opinion polls. I think there will be a temptation to go early because and hold an election the second half of 2021 usually Australian elections do take place in the second half of the year and that was put out joint in 2016. So I think this year, I think there could be an effort to reset it back to the norm of a normal elections in the second half of the year. 
So, welcome back to Ballots to Talk About, and for one week only, welcome to the inaugural, the prestigious Ballot to Talk About Political Awards for 2020, held in the glittering, well, thanks to COVID, bedrooms of Sam and Churn. Glittering indeed. Well, we suddenly have lights on, we have our drinks ready, and we're prepared to announce well, I suppose the awards that are much more anticipated than who's going to win Best Picture, the Oscars. <laughs> it certainly has been an Oscars of a political year. It started out, if you remember, Trump's trial in the Senate, which felt like such a long time ago. And if you remember, Brexit, we actually the United Kingdom actually left the European Union in that gl- on January the 31st. Um, seems like such a long time ago. We've also had key elections this year. In February, we've had the start of the Democratic primaries and the, well, as it turns out, farce of the Iowa caucuses and to the four-day United States elections, which to us really riveted us, although I suspect most people found it long and tedious. Um, Other countries in the world have also had elections, such as New Zealand to Romania, Moldova, and certainly politics has not stopped in this truly extraordinary year hasn't it no not at all and i think before we get too tied into talking about lots of these events i'm sure they'll come up as we talk about our awards but i think it's time to move on to the first award do you think Exactly, and we would like to reassure viewers that unlike the Oscar Awards, it won't take three hours with numerous commercial (laughs) breaks. No, no. So I think it might be nice to start with Speech of the Year. Do you have any particular contenders that you'd like to bring up for Speech of the Year? I think Speech of the Year, I, I want to nominate Angela Merkel, actually. I think she made two speeches which were really interesting. First of all, at the start of the pandemic, she talked about this clip, about this quite short clip during a press conference in which she talked about the R rate in Germany, if you recall, and the fact about why Germany had to lock down now because of hospital capacity. And she gave a very clear, succinct way of communicating why Germany had to lock down because if they didn't, that by October, their hospital capacity was going to be overwhelmed. And it was by far the clearest indicator of why we should lock down that was ever expressed by a politician. And it did maybe say, tell me, the advantage of having a scientist this year as a political leader, because this is definitely the scientist in her speaking. Mm-hmm. I know she also came across very un-Angela Merkel like in a speech at the end of the year, imploring Germany to lock down again for Christmas, in which she displayed uncharacteristic emotion, which I have never seen before. Yeah, actually, one of my contenders was that speech that Angela Merkel made last week about the Christmas restrictions, because in my opinion, it was one of those moments where a politician who's known, well, internationally for being an effective operator administratively, and that's why she's been Chancellor of Germany for 15 years, but it was the emotional side that really got it, and it was the combination of showing that these are things that really in the every fiber of her being as chancellor does not want to have to do but feels it's so necessary that she needs to express this and i just thought it was a really powerful demonstration of the impact covid-19 has had on the world but also the like the raw human impact of it and why these are not decisions about the economy first, they are decisions about health first. And my number one role as Chancellor of Germany is to look after the people of Germany, and that's what I'm going to do. And I just thought that really summed up a lot of what's going on this year. And I thought it was an outstanding speech, really. But the other person who I want to nominate is uh, Michelle Obama's speech from the Democratic Convention, because, well, Michelle Obama has become basically one of the biggest figures in the Democratic Party, almost a cult figure internationally as well as in the states and her speech she made at the convention which was i think on the opening night of the convention if i remember correctly she spoke with an authenticity about the impact of trump's policies not as a politician grandstanding reading a speech from a lectern but as a as a mother and as a first lady just sat in a chair talking straight to the camera about 
how the incumbent Trump administration's policies have impacted everyday Americans. And I just thought it was a really powerful political statement, but a very unusual political statement at the same time. And I know it was playing for days and days after she delivered it, but I just thought the authenticity in Michelle Obama's speech in that convention was really powerful. I think, to me, what was more powerful about the speech was the light is that you know me, I hate politics. And, we, and she said yeah. that with such conviction, but then went on to do such a uh, personal antidote. I thought that was why it was so powerful. And she's actually one of the best orators I felt in the Democratic Party. Because if you remember back in 2016, is when they yeah. go low, we go high. That was the moment of the 2016 um, convention. And arguably, she gave, I suspect, a speech in 2020, which probably outshined her husband too. Yeah, she really did. Anyway, we're going to move on swiftly onto our next award, which is to gaff of the year. As politicians, you know, gaffes come naturally to them. Well, more naturally to some politicians than to others. And it always makes for fun reading. Who is your nominee, Sam? So my first nominee for gaff of the year, because I think this is potentially gaff of the century in terms of election administration, which is one of the things we like to pay close attention to on this podcast. It has to go to the Iowa caucus because that was a farce of an evening. Some people will remember that the Iowa Democratic Party had tried to use a new app for local counties to send in the caucus results and the app was just not functioning properly. So it took days for us to get a certification of the Iowa results and I just thought it was the most horrendous administrative gaffe we've seen in quite some time for election administration. Did the same app company run the NHS NHS app as well? I can only assume. I can only assume so. <laughs> I have to admit, the Iowa caucuses were one of the, like, if you can't even hold a basic primary in, let's be honest, a state with not many people in no. it. I mean, how on earth? I had lots of fears for... Uh, the rest of the process but it turns out it was just caucuses and it was just Iowa so at least things weren't able to settle and presidential nominee that everyone could accept came out of the process. I did feel sorry for Mayor Pete though because A, he did create history on that night. A, being the first LGBT candidate to actually win delegates actually and he did win the Iowa caucuses very narrowly and all that momentum, all that, that could have been generated certainly a la Barack Obama 2007 with his Iowa caucus victory. That momentum that he had, certainly Pete couldn't have generated because it just disappeared because everyone was talking about the farce of the process. Is the Iowa caucus also your nominee for GAF of the Year? Well, I have to say, I think I have to go a bit more general and talk about, I think it's American democracy in in total. (laughs) First of all, I've learned so many different things. I mean, you and I, we both follow politics quite closely. And I have to say that I've learned new aspects of American democracy. I certainly didn't realize there were canvassing boards in each state, that counties had to certify the results and send them to a canvassing board. All these processes seem so archaic for the 21st century. And let's be honest, it was severely tested this year. It was. We, we saw the bare bones of American democracy at work this year. Oh, certainly. So that's why I would say, I would not talk about it gaff, but I would say that it definitely has been a, one of the best losers of 2020. For sure, for sure. Those are some worthy winners of gaff of the year, for certain. Definitely. Let's move on to a category we both had fun thinking of, was worst politician of the year. We <laughs> talked about, we're going to talk about the best politician of the year later. Um, we should say at this moment that we haven't really talked about why we nominated these people before, so we're hearing the reasoning for the first time. But my nominee for worst politician year has to go to Martha McSally. She wins that, I think, by a country mile. She's responsible for returning both Arizona seats, thanks to her two appointed terms. She was never even elected in the first place, um, terms in the U.S. Senate. Um, she lost to Kirsten Cinema in 2018 and also lost to Mark Kelly in 2020. She's single-handedly responsible for turning both Arizona Senate seats to Democrats, which deserves applause. And don't forget, one of her campaign tactics late on in the campaign when she was being outraged by Mark (laughs) Kelly was asking you to sacrifice your lunch 
in order to send her money, which I thought is scraping the lowest of the low, isn't it? It really is. I now have my nominee in front of me, but I don't really know if they can compete with that <laughs> because Martha McSally really is extraordinary in this category. But I'll let you know what it is anyway. Um, mine is Gavin Williamson, who I think has had an appalling year as Education Secretary, coming off the back of a 2019 where he was sacked as Defence Secretary for breaking the State Secrets Act and then was re-employed by Boris Johnson to be Education Secretary and oversaw one of the biggest gaps in education in years with the A-level results fiasco this summer, which is made even worse by the fact that the exact same thing happened in Scotland less than a week before, and they still did nothing about it and maintained for a few days after A-level results day that they weren't going to take the same action as Scotland and ultimately caved. And still, he is in his job, and he even contributed even more to my nomination in the last 48 hours when they released a back-to-school handbook for head teachers to read to implement testing regimes in January on the second to last day of term and head teachers have been in pandemonium trying to sort that out within the last 24 hours of their school being open but I just thought that that topped off what has been a horrendous year for Gavin Williamson. And he's still in his, isn't a job, isn't he? Unlike many people in the private sector. He is, he is. So we'll see how long that lasts. But yes, Gavin Williamson is my nominee for Worst Politician of the Year. I think both worthy contenders on both sides. And countries that, let's be honest, haven't, haven't faced COVID very well. The one thing, obviously, in bad to talk about is that we can't really not talk about elections. We've been talking consistently over the many podcasts. So, Sam, what is your nominee for election of the year? There were so many choices, but I think I'm going to settle on one that happened actually at the start of the year, which was the Irish election in February. Uh, because oh gosh, that did happen this year, didn't yeah, it? Yeah, this could have been a nominee for did that really happen in 2020? But it was. it's going to go for my election of the year because of the way that the results panned out. Not only did we see Sinn Féin come in second place, narrowly missing out on actually winning that election by just one seat in the end, we also saw an eventual governing agreement that led to Fiona Fall and Fiona Gale joining in a coalition-style agreement, which would mean that Leo Varadkar and Michael Martin alternate as Taoiseach, which, to people who don't know Irish politics very well, Both centrist parties who have been competing for government in the recent history and have been alternating power ever since. But for them to come into an agreement just to keep Sinn Féin out of government was quite a development. And we're seeing both of those enormous parties share government at the moment. And I just thought that that was a, a real indicator of where Irish politics is going and was a turbulent election, not just in its the historic nature of its results, but also the historic nature of the eventual government formation. I think that's really interesting, and I think you're absolutely right in which the Irish election is a worthy contender, because Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael hate each other, mm-hmm. and the fact they've come together to, to essentially keep Sinn Féin out, I thought that was really interesting. My nominee for election of the year actually was the election we cover on ballot to talk about over few episodes actually which was the New Zealand election one year ago I was just checking Jacinda Ardern's uh, re-election prospects was actually quite grim actually her party's behind in the opinion polls and the national party was polling at 45% shared vote well then came COVID I would say and the Labour Party was re-elected with a majority government in a proportional representation system which is we can't, we've known elections for many years. It's so rare that a party can get a majority government in a proportional representation system. It's the first one in New Zealand, and certainly worldwide, there are very, very few examples. So that is why the, that it is my election of the year. It's the fact that the Labour Party was able to get a majority on its own very easily. You know, in the end, it got 50% share of the vote. It got there on share of the vote. And I think by that historical nature ensures that that, to me, is my nominee for election of the year. 
Yeah, it, it was quite an achievement to get a majority government in the proportional system, as we talked about at the time. And that dovetails very neatly on to, I had to refresh my feed slash shock of the year. We're both avid scrollers of Twitter in our free time. And there have been certain news events that we saw that made us like look back, ask, is that really true? And make sure like we're not reading fake news. So Sam, who is your shock of the year? So my shock of the year turns us back the clock as well, back to February, when Sajid Javid resigned as Chancellor of the Exchequer in the UK, because for your Chancellor to resign is quite a big moment in politics and usually predicates a fall of government. And on this occasion... Certainly spelled the end of um, Nigel Lawson's resignation yeah, from Margaret Thatcher's cabinet exactly. in 1989. Exactly. And... I remember we were actually g- just going into a lecture together when the news dropped and we were both saying, I cannot believe this has happened. And Sajid Javid just walked out. And that was the shock of the year for me, because usually, as I said, the resignation of a chancellor is a big deal. And it came as such a shock and completely non-predicted resignation in my books. Uh, definitely. I mean, I remember that day very well. And yes, I think that's a definitely worthy winner. Of shock of the year. My shock of the year was actually, well, back to New Zealand actually, was when Todd Muller resigned as National Party leader. Oh, yeah. He only yeah. been leader for seven weeks. And to suddenly resign, I remember I was on a Monday morning and I read that and I thought, hang on, I mean, this is the year New Zealand is going to hold an election. You already announced the September election and you want to resign in June. Now, there was no indication prior to before that he was struggling or anything like that. And it handed to Judith Collins an impossible situation because the National Party was already struggling and having to get a new leader that close to an election just made their impossible situation even worse. Definitely. And I think, to be honest, once uh, Todd Muller's resignation, I think people just decided in New Zealand that, come on, this is the year in which a pandemic happens. You're only the third leader of the year. How could we possibly vote for you, given the shenanigans that you place upon leadership of of your country, really. Two very worthy contenders in my book for Shock of the Year. Time is fast running out, and we have two more categories we'd like to quickly talk about. One of the things that COVID has done is that it's produced political transformations, both good and bad. Who is a politician that, in your eyes, defied expectations? So my nominee for Transformation of the Year is the current Chancellor who replaced Sajid Javid, Rishi Sunak, because when he marched up the streets of Downing Street as the new Chancellor after Sajid Javid's shock resignation, it was almost seen as just a convenient appointment because a budget was looming and Rishi Sunak, who had been Chief Secretary of the Treasury, was heavily involved in drawing that up. So naturally had to take over at such short notice and it was very much seen as well he'll stay in this job and the next time a reshuffle comes around there is no way he keeps it and then covid happened and the furlough scheme happened this just nightmare of a year from an economic perspective and rishi sunak has suddenly become one of the biggest names in uk politics it's actually mad he went from at the start of this year, being a relatively unknown member of a pretty average cabinet to being the almost heir apparent to the Conservative Party. The transformation is just completely wild. And let's be honest, I think without Rishi Sunak, could you imagine what the Tories would be polling the polls right now? Oh, it, it would be dire, yeah. Absolutely dire. Uh, my nominee, I'm going to have two nominees for Transformation of the Year. First of all, Scott Morrison. Um, <laughs> we talked about one-liners uh, speeches of the year. He, at the start of the year, don't think Australia was facing its worst bushfire crisis in its history. And he famously went on radio. First of all, having absconded to Hawaii on a family holiday and not telling anyone. Um, he, when he came back, he then went on radio and said, and asked on why he didn't appear on the front line and leading the government's response was, well, I don't hold a hose, mate. Which, first of all, is such an Australian thing, but it was such appalling PR for somebody who was marketing tourism in Australia. You just think, you should have known much better. He was having but since a nightmarish then, 2020 at the start of the year. 
Oh, suddenly, and the Labour Party was ahead in the polls. It really looked like it was going to be a change of government until COVID happened. And what and what COVID happened is that Scott Morrison is one of the few politicians that learned on the job. I would mm-hmm. say that not many politicians learned from their mistakes. He suddenly learned from his mistakes and actually was much more on the front foot in regards to COVID. And therefore, now at the end of the year, he ends it with him being miles in front as preferred prime minister. The coalition, he, the Liberal National Party is ahead in the polls and it looks very much certain that he is going to benefit and call an early election to win the, his Liberal Party another year, another term in office. So that, to me, is transformation of the year, really. Someone completely written off, but used COVID and did a good response, learned from his mistakes in terms of communicating and how to present government policies and knew when to U-turn at the right opportunity as well. So he wasn't just stubborn ideologically. He was a practical politician. Mm-hmm. So he wins transformation of the year. And very quickly, I would like to mention Doug Ford, who is the Premier of Ontario. I have to admit, this is a bit of a left-field appointment. It came to me very late in the game. But Doug Ford, when he was elected Premier of Ontario in 2018, was seen as Canada's answer to Donald Trump. Um, For people who don't know, if you Google Doug Ford, he looks like a used car salesman. And (laughs) I think you know why. But he surprised me in the fact that in the early stages of the pandemic, I thought he would pander like most libertarian leaders like Donald Trump, Boris Johnson, to an, enact a strategy of very much of, uh, you know, let's not lock down the economy, herd immunity kind of thing, you know, save the economy, save livelihoods. But actually, he listened to the scientists and then scolded people on television and any press conferences for not listening to the government advice and was very straight down the barrel communicator, which I thought was very impressive. So that's why I thought he went transformation here. I think time is running out, so let's end on the big one. A bit like Best Picture, this is our politician of the year. Who is your politician of the year? So when I was thinking about this, I was trying to think of someone who I think has achieved something quite remarkable within their job this year. When I was looking back over what happened in politics this year, there was one event that stood out to me that not many people talk about, but I think this individual played a large role in. So my politician of the year is Julian Smith, the Conservative Member of Parliament now, but formerly the Northern Ireland Secretary in the early part of this year until the February reshuffle. Because Julian Smith managed to get the Northern Ireland Assembly, Stormont, back up and running after I think it was three years of no government there because they'd fallen out and Sinn Féin and the DUP were refusing to cooperate. And Julian Smith is largely credited by people who are very much in the know in Northern Ireland for getting that back up and running by being a very effective negotiator, by sitting and listening to both parties and achieving what most people were starting to believe was going to be an impossible task because getting Michelle O'Neill and Arlene Foster to sign on to a a power-sharing arrangement was just looking like it was never going to happen. So I'm going to nominate Julian Smith for this award, which is unlike me to nominate a Conservative Member of Parliament. And I apologise for being Brit-centric in a few of these nominations, but I really think that that was quite an outstanding achievement that deserves to be recognised in quite a turbulent year. I think from as well, when he the tributes, I remember when he left as Northern Ireland Secretary felt very genuine and yeah. a lot of people commented as were saying this is the first Northern Ireland Secretary he had in a while that actually cared about Northern Ireland and I think that was very evident and I think yeah. that's a very nice worthy winner of Politician of the Year. My Politician of the Year is someone who um, I'm going to go from the left, actually, which is since you went from the right, I will go from the left. Um, you probably might work out now where Sam and I's political leanings lie. But my politician on the left is someone who shows, I think, tells a few stories about life in general, who has, even though faced with many knocks in your life, is that you can still get up and achieve your life goals, which is, 
actually seems very cliche to nominate it. Like Time Magazine, I'm going to nominate Joe Biden for Politician of the Year. Because let's be honest, when the Democratic primaries, something the Iowa caucuses we briefly talked about, I mean, he came what? Fifth? Sixth? Or certainly a non-entity, something like that. Mm -hmm. And then to transform your political environment in the space of 72 hours, then become the inevitable Democratic frontrunner, and then to eventually take the U.S. presidency off, I think deserves a very good credit mention. I don't think he's naturally the smoothest politician. He certainly is not in terms of um, speaking. He's definitely not as compelling as Barack Obama or the Obamas or somebody else. But the way in which he, he conveys empathy, and I remember the story in which he talked to that boy who stutters in New Hampshire, if you remember that 12-year-old yeah. boy, that I think it's a quality that is missing in so many politicians now. That it's just nice to see. And don't forget, this is Joe Biden's third attempt to run for the presidency. He got less than 1% of the vote when he ran in 2008. So although I came into a lot of criticism for why Time Magazine nominated, um, I thought it was bad form when healthcare workers should be the Time Magazine's person of the year. I think he is a worthy winner of politician of the year because of what he has suffered before. We well know that he lost his son, Bo, to brain cancer and to his first wife and daughter died in, in the 70s. So to face that kind of personal tragedy to, but still achieve his goal, yeah, he is definitely my politician of the year. Another worthy winner, I will have to say. But that is it for our latest episode of Ballot to Talk About, where we've been celebrating the year that was 2020. I'm sure nobody will ever forget this year. But please do join us again next time when we'll be talking all things Brexit, hopefully. Hopefully. As the transition period comes to an end and a deal or no deal is signed, we shall see. And as usual, we'll bring you up to date on the world of politics and elections around the globe. You can follow us on Twitter at at ballot underscore talk. And please do leave us a rating or review or tell your friends about us if you've enjoyed it. But as this is the last podcast before Christmas, we couldn't end without saying please do have a Merry Christmas and Merry Christmas to you, Turn. Merry Christmas, Sam. And uh, any Christmas films you'll be watching in the next few days, favourites? Oh, I mean, first of all, I would say how many more times are going to play Mariah Carey's All I Want <laughs> for Christmas is you. But um, the... I think Christmas in Singapore, in short, is... Uh, when I watch snowy things, it's a bit hard to stomach, really. <laughs> it just shows our different locations, really. Merry Christmas to all who celebrate it, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Mm-hmm.